If you, if you have a, a smartphone, take out your smartphone, please, if you have it. This is not a fire drill. Take out your smartphone if you have a smartphone. Open up to the app that's your musical store, whether it's iTunes or open up that app, please. Whatever that is, if it's Spotify or open that up. Go to the search section and type in Gelato Soul, J-E-L-A-T-O Soul. Type that in, download that song, and let's support our brother Josh Gardner who released a banger on Friday, all right? We support our own. Download this song, please, listen to it, and encourage our brother. Gelato Soul, J-E-L-A-T-O Soul, one word, and it's called Faded. Download that, please. Feature is Faded. Let's support our own. Don't listen to it right now, though. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> but I appreciate the enthusiasm. Support our brother. We don't support each other enough. We work hard sometimes, and nobody knows it. We supporting our brother today. Y'all can thank me later. All right, we got a lot to talk about today. We have much to discuss. We are in a series called The Supernatural Storyline of the Bible. We are looking at things, trying to understand how ancient Near Eastern Jews would have understood the Bible from a supernatural context, not the scientific context in which we understand. They understood things from the supernatural world. We understand things more from the natural world. So this series is intended to look at the Bible through that lens. And today we are in part two of Genesis 3, we're doing three messages in this, in this to find out what exactly is going on in one of the most iconic visual scenes in all existence. I told you this is going to be a three-message a three saga like Lord of the Rings, but it's called the Underlord did that thing. <laughs> so this is part two, and here's the question, one of the questions we're going to be answering. Why did God curse the serpent? And the second question we're going to hope to answer is, why did the serpent go after Eve and not Adam? Let's read from Genesis 3, beginning in verse 1, and I quote. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was, was desired 
to make one wise, she took of his fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called out to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard you in, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Last week, I made a claim that I intend to build on today. Last week, the claim was that the Garden of Eden was Satan's first attempt at the throne, that there wasn't a prior war in heaven that he was cast out of, and it was on earth, and then when earth was created, then he went. But, no, but earth was actually, the Garden of Eden is the first attempt at overthrowing God's authority. And one of the things I said was the earth is an expansion of the kingdom of God's authority. The earth is not initially when it was created, wasn't a separate space. It was a space where heaven and earth would meet, where divine beings and human beings would work together. But human beings would be the ones working with God in the earth as divine beings are in the ones working in heaven. We're going to build on this idea today. And we're going to do it through these two questions. Why did God curse the serpent? And why did the serpent go after Eve instead of Adam? First question. Why did God curse the serpent? Let's look back at verse 14 of Genesis 3. It says it right here. The Lord said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock. Well, what's the this that he's done? Eve said it in verse 13. The serpent deceived me, and I ate. And the Lord said, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. So when we read this account, it's very clear that the serpent represents now a re reprehensible relational dynamic between God and himself and then even humanity. The serpent from here on out is a bad dude. So why does the Bible tell us this in the book of Numbers? Beginning in verse 21, verses 4 through 9. And I quote, from Mount Or, they set out by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way. 
And the people spoke against God and Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food, no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Mind you, this was the manna from heaven. Mind you that Jesus said he was the bread of life that comes down from heaven. Mind you, they're complaining about Jesus. But that's a different conversation. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many of the people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, we have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people, and the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And everyone who is bitten when he sees it shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if, any, if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. But the serpent is a cursed animal. It made sense that God would use them to kill people for disobedience, but why does he use it to save them? Hmm. Fast forward in Matthew chapter 10, verse 16. Jesus says this to his disciples, Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. So why is Jesus telling his disciples to be wise as the creature that deceived Adam and Eve who is reprehensible saying be wise as the serpent? Who is the serpent? Let's go a little further. John 3.16 is the most famous verse in the Bible. You see that you see it's everywhere, games on billboards and signs, John 3.16. But let's go back six verses and see what Jesus says with his own mouth. Talking to Nicodemus, he says this. Are you the teacher of Israel? And yet you do not understand these things? Truly. Truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and we bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I've told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except the, he who, who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Why is Jesus identifying himself with a serpent? This is the creature cursed above all livestock. But Jesus is equating what Moses did in Numbers 24 as a, a form of salvation and saying that like that serpent, the cursed above all livestock, was lifted up, Jesus must be lifted up. And then he names the most popular verse in the world. Who is the serpent? 
I thought he was a cursed being. Why is God speaking so affirmatively about him? In John 12, Jesus says this, the night before he was to be taken and crucified, he said this, now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said, and it thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered. The voice, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world, Satan, right? That's what we know, the serpent. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. Why does Jesus, in this verse, say, when I'm lifted up, the ruler of this world, the serpent, will be cast out? And then in John 3, the serpent that Moses used, we're synonymous. Moses saved the people from death in numbers when they looked at the serpent and while I'm lifted up, I'm going to save those who believe in me. Who is the serpent? Why is God talking so positively about a being that he cursed above all other creatures in the world? What is happening in Genesis chapter 3? I have no idea. I'm sorry, guys. I'm not. <laughs> but I'm willing to speculate. What is the serpent? Well, there are four ways that the Bible speaks about serpents. Four ways. The first, a created animal that's known to bite and be poisonous. We see this in like Mark 16. Mark 16, Jesus says this. Supposedly, because Mark 9 through 20 is not in any of the original manuscripts. So this might not be what Jesus actually said, but what someone added later. But for our purposes, here's what Jesus said. And these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name, they will cast out demons. They will speak in new tongues. They will pick up serpents with their hands. And if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. They will lay their hands on the sick and they will recover. So they might grab a serpent. If they get bit by a poison, it doesn't matter. That's the first way. That's obvious to many of us. We see serpents that way. We call them snakes. The Bible only calls them serpents. I think it's intentional. The second way that the Bible talks about the serpent is in the supernatural storyline framework. Remember what's happening here. If you are an ancient Near Eastern Jew who is just getting this for the first time, you don't have revelation like us. You don't know because there's nowhere else in the Bible except for Revelation 12 that calls Satan the serpent, that old serpent. 
So if you're an ancient Near Eastern Jew and you're reading the book of Moses, the Pentateuch, you don't have categories for a single being called Satan that did this. You just have the serpent did this. And they were coming, they were spent 400 years in Egypt, and so God is explaining to them, this is what really happened. In their minds, they have Egyptian heliopolitan theology. So God uses imagery, he uses the imagery of other gods, explaining to the Israelites, clarifying for them, that those stories are false, they're really about me, and this is what happened. Point. Apopis, or also called Apep or Rerek, ancient Egyptian demon of chaos who had, the, who had the form of a serpent and as the foe of the sun god, Ray, represented all that was outside the ordered cosmos. Although many serpents symbolized divinity and royalty, Apopis threatened the underworld and symbolized evil. Each night, he encountered Ray at a particular hour in the sun god's ritual journey through the underworld, seeking to destroy him. So this is what the Jews would have understood in terms of their understanding, is there's a, an evil serpent named Apopis who was threatening Ray, which is one of three gods, but who they understood to be the god where the other two come out from. This was their version of the Trinity. Ray is the Egyptian god of creation, the sun and the state, for he symbolized the cosmo cosmogenic energies and qualities that rule the universe and that find their terrestrial incarnation in Pharaoh. So see, they thought that Pharaoh was the incarnation of the god who created and controls the world, and that the serpent represented the evil trying to undo him. This is the theology that Egypt knew before God wrote Genesis 3 to Moses. As we'll see later in this series, when God is referring to names that seem weird to us and, and particular beings, he's talking about supernatural evil beings that have jurisdiction on our planet. God is not creating a new narrative. He's clarifying an old one. So that's the second way that the Bible talks about serpents. The third is the obvious one, the devil. Revelation 12, 7 through 9. Now war rose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back. This language is interchangeable. Dragon. Serpent, all these, all these different names mean the same being because God is speaking to the way that other religions crafted their origin stories using the dragon in one as their God, the serpent as another in their God, and all these different things in order to explain that these are all the same person and I, your God, have authority over them. In verse 9 it says, and the great dragon was thrown down. Look, the great dragon that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. The Jews who heard Genesis 3 had no idea about that. They had no clue. This came in Revelation, New Testament, thousands of years later. They had no clue. 
he was thrown down to earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. Revelation 20, 1 and 2. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit in a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. And he bound him for a thousand years. So we know that the serpent is the devil. It's the third way the Bible talks about serpents. And there's a fourth way. There's another being that explains everything. So who is the serpent in Genesis 3? Well, let's look at one very overlooked point about Genesis. Many of us are so familiar with the story that the emphasis is on Adam and Eve. But here's what verse 1 says about the serpent. Here's the first thing that God wanted us to know about the serpent. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast in the field of the field that the Lord God had made. This is God wants us to have this information, wanted the Israelites to have this information that the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field the Lord God had made. Why does God want us to know that? Why does that matter? He's more crafty. Depending on your translation, it may say more crafty. It may say cunning. It may say shrewd. If you got that old King James, it may say subtle. I think it's supposed to be subtle, but it just looks like subtle. The Hebrew word for crafty is arum, and this is what it means in Hebrew. Thank you. I've been working on my accent. Here's what it means. It means shrewd, sensible, prudent. It can mean cunning, clever, a person who shows cleverness, sensibility, and sound judgment in decision-making. It's marked by skill and deception, wise, lord, master, ruler. These are all ways, and and depending on the context, to figure out what is it saying about this serpent. Was that he's crafty. He's wise. He's subtle. He's shrewd. He makes sound judgment and decision-making. Now, here's why you and I get thrown off, because we see everything through the natural lens. For you and I, we think, but yeah, we're talking about, but we have no idea how animals function before sin came into the world. We don't know how things look. Remember, and we'll get to this next week, when God cursed Adam, he said, curse is the ground. The whole world, we know Revelation 8 tells us the whole earth is groaning. Right, the world does not look the way it looked before Adam and Eve bit that fruit. We have no idea how animals functioned, how people functioned, how people looked, how the world looked. We just know it looked better than this because it was part of the kingdom of God. So we read this and we think, oh, I don't know, man, because we think naturally. We, from the scientific era, 
but this isn't written from a scientific perspective. God's writing to a group of people who they know all this dark, supernatural magic. This is what they know. So crafty is the first description we get of the serpent, intentional. God wanted us to know this being, this serpent, is smart. Smarter than all the other animals that were created. The word serpent, this is where it gets interesting. The word serpent in Hebrew is nakash. It has a lot of meanings. The reason why is because Hebrew words don't have vowels. All the words are built off of a three-letter root, three-consonant root. So you build different words off of these three roots, and then you can, then you, it's almost like a puzzle. Like, here's the root, and then these other come in, and then you construct, and they mean different things. So the Hebrew word, the Hebrew root for the word nakash, can have a noun, a verb, and an adjective all attached to it. And they can mean different things. It can mean different things. This isn't the same. This isn't a one-to-one, but I've said this before. Kind of like the word there for us. It sounds the same. It's almost spelled the same. But they're not. They're three different meanings, three different contexts. If you write the wrong one in a, in a text, someone will be confused. They're over there with the apostrophe R-E. Like, they're over they are? What is he talking about? Hebrew's not exactly like that, but just to give you a framework. You have three-letter root, and you build on that, and you create different meanings. So if you take nakash in its normal noun meaning, then it would mean serpent. If you take it in its normal verb meaning, then it would mean to burn. But it could mean diviner, one who practices magical arts. Or it could mean deceiver. If you take it as a substantive adjective, then the word would mean shining one. Different definitions that I think God is describing are all present in this scene. The serpent, the nakash, the shining one, is a deceiver. He's a serpent. And depending on your resource, you're going to process that a particular way. The point of Genesis 3.1 is that a fiery serpent who was the wisest or wiser than all earthly animals deceived Adam and Eve. So who is the serpent? If this is true, then why are there positive references from God for him? That's confusing. So then here's a question if you're like me. Well, why is he the craftiest? Why is he the wisest of all the beasts of the field? To potentially answer that, we have to go to another space. Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6. Here's where it gets really interesting. Beginning in verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. 
Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two, he covered his face. And with two, he covered his feet. And with two, he flew. One called to another, and one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having his hand, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. The word seraph, seraphim, is the Hebrew word for serpent. For some reason, in our translation, we use the word seraphim. This is the Hebrew word for serpent. This is used eight times in the Hebrew Bible, and every time it's mentioned, it means a serpent. So Isaiah has a vision, and what he's describing in this vision are flying serpents with six wings. They are upright, yelling, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. This imagery would have been familiar to the Israelites. Ancient Egypt used flying snakes as an icon of creatures that were surrounding their God. If you look back at old, if you go back and look, you find this stuff online, old hieroglyphic stuff, or if you look at, there's these, um, these little medallions that people have found. I, I have all this information elsewhere, but you can look on these and see these pictures of flying serpents in, dating back to the days of Isaiah. These were created back then. So this would have been familiar to the Israelites. Their relationship with the Egyptians and the Egyptian theology had serpents flying as fundamental to their understanding of the deities that they worshipped. As a matter of fact, there are some who even say that Isaiah more than likely used the word seraphim to describe the culture's understanding of a flying serpent creature. That it's not necessarily a, a unique Hebrew name, but he borrowed it to make the point. Because God is saying, let me, yeah, they exist, but not in the way that those gods describe. Let me remix that. Bring it back to the way it really is. Theologian Trigg Medinger says this, there is now emerging consensus that the Egyptian Uraeus serpent is the original source of the seraphim motif. That Isaiah is borrowing the motif of this serpent to describe beings that are in the presence of God Serpents, upright serpents with six wings, two covering the eyes, two covering the feet, and two flap so they can fly, yelling, holy, holy is the Lord. 
theologian Ben Stanhope, this is what he wrote a piece called it. Listen to the title of this piece. The reception of the winged serpent motif on Hebrew seals of the late monarchy and the biblical seraphim. None of you are going to read that book. See what I do for you guys? Here's what he said. This creature was probably not just a divine being masquerading as a snake, but a divine being likened to the gleam of metal whose natural form is a snake. Speaking of the serpent in Genesis 3. So is Satan a seraphim who rebelled and disobeyed God? Well, some would say yes. Some would say yes. They would say, Revelation 12, 9. Revelation 12, 9. Keep the commentary to after the, after the show. <laughs> Revelation 12, 9 attributes that old serpent to Genesis 3. It says it in that dragon, that old serpent, Satan. Here's another reason why they think that Genesis 3 is not describing that Satan possessed something from the animal kingdom, but that the serpent was actually more of like a seraphim, a serpentine-like creature that came. One of their justifications for this is that they say this. In the Hebrew Bible, the Hebrew Bible, remember, when we read, we read an English translation of a Bible in other languages. All right? So we don't read exactly what they wrote. We read a translation. This is why you got the NIV says this, the King James says this, the CSB says this, because you, you, through etymology, through the use of words, you, in the language you're in, the culture you're in, sometimes you paraphrase the meaning and not give the actual meaning. So we're not using the original language, we're reading translation. Well, in the Hebrew Bible, Genesis 3.1 says this, the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field the Lord God has made. Our translation, or some of them say, more crafty than any other beast of the field. But the Hebrew Bible does not have the word other. So when you say any other beast, it sounds like it's a beast that was just like any other, but he was smarter than the other ones that God made. But if you take out the word other, that it was just the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field, then it doesn't necessarily mean that it was an animal that God created. It was just smarter than all the animals that God created. They would say the serpent is some seraphim, highly intelligent, serpentine-like being that once stood in the presence of God and that deceives Adam and Eve. And that the serpent in Genesis 3 is not referring to a member of the animal kingdom that Satan possessed. That's what they would say. I think there's really good reason to see the serpent of Genesis 3 is not an actual reptile, but a divine being. I think there's good reason to see that. But I respectfully disagree. I respectfully disagree. I respectfully disagree. I believe it was a creature that Satan corrupted. Let me explain why. We know ultimately that this is Satan. 
right? So on one level, it doesn't really matter because the thrust of the story is that Satan, that old serpent, deceived Adam and Eve, and it doesn't change what happened if it was a seraphim that came down and deceived Adam, or if it was Satan that corrupted an animal, a beast of the field. On one level, it doesn't matter. On another level, I think it does matter, and it may be deeper than how people are actually viewing it. Let me explain. Genesis 3.1 is the transition from the creation account, all right? So we got Genesis 1, six days of creation. Then we see the pinnacle of creation is humanity, all right? The pinnacle of creation is humanity. That's how God laid it out. Let me build this world, and then let me create these beings and give them authority over it. This is the way God established authority. Genesis 2 kind of zooms in to God creating Adam and Eve, and then we see Adam naming all these animals. Doesn't have a, someone that's a suitable partner for him, so God puts him to sleep, takes out of his rib, fashions it into a woman, and then here they go. And Genesis 2 ends with Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve are married. And then we get to Genesis 3. And it says, the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field that the Lord God had made. So here's a question to consider. Why does God want us to know that a divine being is smarter than a creature he created from the dirt? Like, why would that be noteworthy information to the, to the Israelites or to us? Like, why would God emphasize and compare a divine being's intelligence versus one that he created from the dirt? Like, that's kind of like a duh. Like, who would assume that a creature that God created from the dirt that Adam named a buzzard is somehow smarter than a divine being? Now, we know that mankind were made in God's image. And there's a level of intelligence that no other creature has. But there's no indication that animals were supposed to be smarter than supernatural beings. So why is God telling us that a supernatural being who's smarter than all of the beasts of the field that God created from dirt came down? Why is he telling us that? Well, it doesn't mean that I'm right, but I don't understand the purpose of the comparison. I mean, we know, we know that Adam and Eve are smarter than the animals that God created from the dirt. At least we assume that, <laughs> right? I mean, it's not like we don't have, I mean, I'm sure, I mean, I mean, again, sin could affect some things, but I doubt dogs was like, hey, look, fam, you should do this. And then, whoa, thanks for the idea. Like, I don't think so. And we know this because if that were the case, then God wouldn't have had to make Eve because animals would be a suitable enough helper to help Adam lead the world, express authority over the world. No animal that was created could do it. So he created Eve. So why would he compare a divine being, a supernatural being, to a natural being and say that he was more crafty? Well, of course. That's like saying, well, LeBron James is better than Kurt in basketball. Uh, 
I mean, not when I'm on my game. You know, it's just like, what are, you, what are we talking about, right? That doesn't mean I'm right, but it's just a, just a thought to consider. The flow of the narrative from creation to chapter 2, God creating these beasts of the field and Adam naming them, to Genesis 3.1 leads me to think that the point of the intelligence fact is not that the being is a quasi divine or that Satan took the form of or something. I think the point is to highlight that the serpent, intellectually speaking, is the Adam of the animal kingdom. It's the wisest. It's the, it's the smartest. I don't think the point is that a supernatural being is wiser, but that out of all the animals that God made, the serpent is the smartest. I think it's the Adam of the animal kingdom. Just as Adam is made in the image of God to his likeness, I think what this is, I think when we put all of it together with the seraphim and all of it, now the ancient, the Jews would have known this, but we're not them. When you put it all together, I think what's happening here is the serpent was made in the image of a seraphim. We see this throughout the Old Testament where God tells them to build the temple, do this, and it's all a replica of what's in heaven. It's normal for God to say, do this, here are the measurements, in light of, and even when it describes these creatures in eternity, it describes them like animals that we're used to. He had eagle feet, the face of a lion, and on one side a, 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 a human. Wait till we see that dude. <laughs> it's like, run. You know, it's like, I mean. I mean, I know, I know the people that's my complex. We gone. When we see it. Hey, what are you? I'll find out later. I see a creature coming with clawed feet, wings, a face of an eagle, a lion, and a human. Who you? Which one are you talking to? <laughs> hey, can you turn? Can I talk to the human dude? When the Bible describes heavenly beings, it describes them in terms of animals that we're used to. So here's the question. Were those beings created after God made them or before he made them? Are we getting a window into creatures that have existed before the earth or did God create them after the earth? I think they've been around for a long time and animals are replicas of heavenly creatures that God had already created. Well, we're not dead yet. We can really go a little deeper. I just want to set this up so you understand. If I'm wrong, you can see why I think I'm right, at least. The serpent in Genesis 3 represents a kind of seraphim, a replica of the divine beings that are in the presence of God saying, holy, holy, holy. And that's why I think God made them the wisest of all the other that he created. Because this being is a replica of the beings that are continually in my presence. So when I make this, this being is going to have more intelligence than all the other beings. Because this, this particular serpent, now remember, we think of snakes as like, ah, unless you really like them. Some of, yep, yep, some of you like them. Raise your hand if you like them. I know the Sanders do, but for the rest of y'all, we're going to test that. Call a priest, bring your snake out to church and see who's afraid to have it wrapped around their neck. We're going to really see. I know a lot of people are like, I'm not afraid of snakes until you go to like some city and they walk up and be like, oh my gosh, don't do it. Please, I don't want to touch it. 
we was in New York City, me and my son, and they just had a snake right there. They was like, hey, you, you want to touch it? And I said, do you have insurance? <laughs> because if you put that snake on me, and it does bite. You know how people say, I, I, man, I don't know. Sidebar for a second. I hate when people say, like, my dog doesn't bite. And then when you're standing in front of it, the dog is like this. He's so friendly, though. I don't know what's happening. You will never, never, unless something is wrong with my mind, see me be like, here, poochie, poochie, when it's like, I don't believe you. I know your dog is nice to you, but for some reason, I'm not going to touch it to test your, if you're true or not. We act like animals. I think people think animals came first. No, animals that God formed are replicas of some animals that we'll see in heaven. So a serpent is a godly, holy being in heaven that when God created on earth, this one's going to be the wisest. Because in eternity, this serpent is the closest to me. It's the closest in proximity to me. So where Adam and Eve are made in the image of God and in God's likeness, and we're the closest in proximity to who he is, the serpent in Genesis 3 is a replica of a seraphim who is closest in proximity to God in location, so it's the wisest. But that's not even the real reason why I believe that Satan inhabited the beast of the field. There's another reason that I think is actually more diabolical and more theological. And that answer, this brings us to our second question. Why did the serpent go after Eve instead of Adam? So for now, we know that the serpent, God cursed the serpent. This is why God cursed the serpent. Not, I don't think it was because he was a divine being, a seraphim, Satan was a seraphim that came down. He could have been, could have been. We hear in Ezekiel 28, you were guardian cherub. Could have been. And there's good, credible people that would say that. I can't argue that there's credible reason to think that. But I think what happened was this being was wise, was smart. And in that, could have and should have resisted the corruption of Satan. And it didn't. It joined him. And so here he is. Sort of like Judas, he was corrupt. It says Satan entered Judas. Now keep in mind, in our Bibles, there are only two times that we know of Satan entering someone. We know demons do, but Satan only twice. I believe Genesis 3 is the first. Judas is the second. Both beings in close proximity to God, both beings intent to overthrow God's authority. Close proximity, using these beings. So what does Satan do in Judah, Judas? 
I'm going to sell him out. 30 pieces of silver. I'm going to tell you where he is so you can kill him. Thinking that's going to overthrow the authority of what he's trying to accomplish. In Genesis 3, I'm going to corrupt this being and then go after Adam and Eve. Let me tell you why I believe this. Satan is trying to oppose God, his creator, the creator of all known and unknown existence. So he's very strategic. This is not somebody that you play one-on-one with, and sometimes you, when he's a little better than you, but you can get the best of him if you... This is God. Satan has to be very strategic in his plan. And to overthrow God, he has to really hate him. He wants to undermine his authority. He wants to undermine it. He wants to corrupt everything that God said was good. And there's a reason why I think he went after Eve instead of Adam. It's just part of the reason. Let's read verses 3, 1 through 5, just to get back into the scene again. Now, now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Here's what's happening, I believe. If we were to summarize the verses that we heard last week, Ezekiel 28, Isaiah 14, if we were to take all relevant verses about that we know about Satan, right, we could easily say that his top priority is to undermine the authority of God in order to dethrone him. Could easily make that point. So his strategy then would follow from that goal. I need to undermine the authority that God has established in this world to overthrow his kingdom. Remember, heaven and earth were one and the same, just different functions in this creation. Based on Genesis 1 and 2, we could say the established authority structure on earth that God created is Humanity exercises dominion over the rest of creation, right? So Adam, the first of humanity created as the head, Eve, the second created as the heart, and then they have dominion over all, have authority over all of the beasts of the field. So Satan's strategy is to overthrow all authority and corrupt everything that God said is good. I think what happens is we get so focused on his corruption of Adam and Eve that we forget that he wants all of it, all good to be gone. We know that when God created animals, beasts of the field, he said they were good. They were good. 
In Genesis 2, he sees that Adam is the one who names him. God sees this as a good thing. So the supernatural being Satan is watching this whole scene. Don't forget, remember we saw from Job, the angels, the sons of God, rejoiced at creation. They said they were all watching God create the earth, create Adam and Eve, and they rejoiced at creation. That means Satan saw Adam's reaction to Eve. They're all watching God create these beasts of the field. Many of them, some of them are just replicas of what's in heaven. I'm not saying every creature was, but there are some creatures. We, we see these in the narratives of the visions of the heavenly places. We see all these. These creatures weren't created after he did that on earth. Earth represents the creatures that we're going to see, sometimes in different form, sometimes a couple of them in one body. But Satan saw Adam's reaction. God, he named all the animals, bird, cat, dog, fish, turtle, scorpion. Okay, cool. But then he sees Adam make Eve. Oh, and things changed. You didn't see, all we, we know Adam spoke because it said he named the animals. But when he saw Eve, Adam sang. That dude was like Luther Vandross, flesh of my flesh, bone of my bone. I mean, he was in. He was in. He saw that. He knew she's different. She's different. So Satan is strategic. I need to corrupt all of this. So Satan's first corruption was the replica of the seraphim. I'm going to corrupt the being that God created as the wisest. And then after I corrupt that being, I'm going to go after Eve. Because if I can corrupt her, then I can get her to corrupt Adam. And then I've undermined his authority. Now look at the structure of his methodology. Here's the authority structure God created. Humanity, animals. We want to call it Adam, Eve, and then the serpent is the wisest. So Satan goes in reverse order. Serpent, Eve, then Adam. I'm going to undermine the order of authority that you've established on the earth. I'm corrupting all of it. So he goes there. He starts with the wisest. All right, I'm going to use the wisest animals. I'm going to work through that. He reverses the established priority of God's authority by having a beast of the field exercise dominion over Eve and Adam instead of the way God intended. Now here's where it gets crazy. Keep in mind that God knows exactly what happened. Right? Keep in mind that God is watching all of this. Heavenly popcorn and all. Let's now go to Genesis 3.9 and see how God responds. So here Satan is reversing the order of God's established authority 
starting with the, the wisest creature that represents, is a replica of the holiest, some of the holiest beings in the heavenly places, he corrupts that being. That had wisdom enough, they should have been like, no, nah, I'm not messing with you. Then he goes to Eve and then to Adam. Here's how God responds, beginning in verse 9 of Genesis 3. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. Now, keep in mind that God knows everything that just happened. But how does God speak? Why doesn't he say, Eve, what were you thinking? <laughs> you, you told him that I said, don't even touch the tree, which I didn't even say. So you put stipulations on yourself to prevent it. What were you thinking? No, that's not what he does. God addresses Adam and Eve with the established authority of creation that he made. So he says, Adam, where are you? What have you done? Then he lets Adam speak. Then he goes to Eve. What have you done? You see, Satan came in and reversed the established authority. God comes to address it in the established authority that he created. There's a little bit more. This is to show you that the Lord is the Alpha and Omega. So he addresses the situation from the order of authority that he created. He doesn't ask the serpent anything because the serpent is not made in his image. It has no authority on earth. He doesn't ask the serpent, well, why'd you do that? He doesn't care. You know, I got three kids. If, if two of my kids blame one of my other kids for something, and I just be like, why did you? They'd be like, I didn't do that. They, you could be like, well, wait a minute, I need to get the whole story. Everybody tell me what happened. But here, God only deals with the established authority that he created. Adam, what have you done? Eve, what have you done? Doesn't ask the serpent anything. Doesn't. Satan undermines the order of God's established authority. God addresses this situation based on his established authority. But then God brings judgment in the same order of the disordered authority that Satan tried to create. So Satan reverses God's order. God addresses creation in, in authoritative order. But then when he brings judgment, he goes back to the way Satan, the way he did it. So he says to the serpent, he addresses him, in verses 14 and 15. He addresses Eve in verses 16, and then he addresses Adam in verses 17 through 19. He could have just nipped this in the bud and said, Eve, what did you do? Here's, here's, here are the consequences. It's like, nope, I'm sticking to the order of my established authority, but when I bring judgment, since chaos is in the world, I'm going to start from the way you brought disorder into the world. So let's start with you, serpent. And here's what he says in verse 14. Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. 
On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Now, whether Satan was, in Genesis 3, the serpent, whether he was a serpentine being a seraphim or a replica of one, the curse covers both natural and supernatural realities. So if this is a replica of the seraphim, a beast of the field, then God does another thing to this. Oh, you want to play the reverse authority game? You want to reverse what I intended? Okay. I'm going to reverse your identity in the world. Remember what Genesis 3.1 says. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field the Lord God had made. Now look at the curse. Cursed are you above all livestock and above all the fields. So you went from being the wisest to now you're the worst. I'm going to reverse your identity in the world since you reversed my authority. You were blessed more than all the beasts of the field, and now you're cursed more than all of them. I made you above the animals that I created, and now you're below. Not big enough. Too small. This curse is in the same manner of the corruption of God's authority. Satan reverses his authority. God reverses his identity. You were this, now you're this. This is both a status and physical form curse. If, these, if, if, if the serpents were replicas of the seraphim, seraphim are not, they're not horizontal beings, they're vertical. I think the language here is God saying the, the physical form that I created for you that's a replica of the heavenly beings that are in front of me in heaven is now changing. You are going down. You are getting low. And the dust you'll eat, slithering across the ground. You know, snake's tongue stick out. God made dirt. Don't, don't hurt. His tongue touches that dirt. When he's slithering. So if he's talking to the replica, which I think it was a replica of the seraphim, then here's the curse to you. But then he talks to Satan. And we apply the same process, but it means something a little different. Remember from last week, Isaiah 14, 13, where it quoted God as saying, you said in your heart, we believe this was speaking about Satan. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. And God says, because you've done this, I'm casting you down to earth. You were in the holy mountain of God. 
You were in my presence. Perfect, beautiful when you were made. I made stones when I created you. You were in all the places. You were already high. But now I'm casting you down to earth. This is what I think Jesus meant when he said, I saw Satan fall like lightning. This is what I think Jesus is talking about. Satan, you are cast down to earth. You are no longer allowed in my presence in the way that you were. You wanted my throne? Now you can remain right there in the place that you thought would give you the kingdom. And not only that, I'm going to take the human beings that I created that you deceived and one day raise up a human to take back the authority that you took. So since you wanted to deceive these people and being king of this place, then one of these human beings is going to come back and take your kingdom from you. Satan's kingdom is now on earth. Remember what Jesus said in John 12. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. Remember what Satan said in Luke 4. I have been given all these kingdoms. I can give them to whoever I want. This is what Jesus was saying when he said, I saw Satan fall like lightning. It was like that. You cannot come up here anymore. You are not welcome in my presence. The only other time we see him in his presence is in Revelation 12 where they went to war and he lost. And mind you, God wasn't there. He was fighting with Michael and the angels. Satan had a strategy to corrupt all that God said was good. So he starts with the being that is the closest in proximity, one of the holiest beings, starting here. Then I'm going to go here and let this being have dominion over Eve. And then Eve will do it to Adam. God reverses it. Says, no, let me speak to the way I created it. But then goes back and reverses it again and says, let's bring out the judgments in the way that you brought out your sinfulness. And he reverses everything. Reverses the identity of the serpent. And then we see one more thing that we've overlooked. And we'll talk about that next week. <laughs> Let's pray. Father, there are so many levels to your word, so many Things that we just don't even know to look for. And so I thank you that at least, even if I'm wrong about some of these connections, at least we're looking at our Bibles with more intensity, more anticipation. Lord, you know that ultimately this is about trying to create an endless fascination with you. 
There's no one who speaks on your behalf that is that impressive that you need to communicate. You don't need me to say anything. You don't need me to pastor this church. You don't need any of us to do anything, but in your kindness and your mercy, do you allow us to participate in what you're doing and accomplishing? So, Father, I pray today, for especially for those of us who struggle with reading your word, who would say, I'm not a reader, or it's difficult, or it's intimidating. I pray that as they hear these messages, that they would be more impressed with and amazed by the varying levels that are in your word that only come through study, meditation. I'm not unique, but I'm willing to think, to learn, to meditate, and to be amazed by the things you put in your word. You do so many subtle things that is incredible. And so I pray that that people's excitement for your word would go. People's excitement to love you would grow. People's leaning in to the fellowship of the body. People, Lord, this is a time where people are dismissive of and okay with a level of mediocrity. Or even below that, they're okay with the bare minimum. Father, I pray that you would use your word, whether what they hear here in the, in this, on these Sundays or somewhere else, to help us to not settle for the scraps of your word when you have steak that we can eat. May we be a people who eat solid food and move on from milk. For your glory and our good. In your name we pray. Amen.